Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where we talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm thrilled to share with you a conversation I got to have with Cal Newport, author of Deep Work and So Good They Can't Ignore You. In this discussion, we talk about naming your distractions, defining your focus, identifying what your shallow work is so that you can identify what your deep work is and understanding what your ratio between those two needs to be so that you can truly break through to create and complete higher quality work. For me, there's a tool I use specifically for this. It's Evernote. I love Evernote because you can capture anything anywhere and organize it. You can be on the go and then I can use it to review at set times in my shallow work mode to decide what to spend my deep work time in focus creating from those thoughts that I've captured. And one hack that both Cal and I share in this conversation is using walking to spend time doing deep work. In other words, what I will do specifically is I will put my phone in airplane mode or at least do not disturb mode, and I will dictate into Evernote to capture as I walk and think. Then that dictation is ready for me to work with again in another session of deep work later. In fact, I've actually done that for episodes of this podcast. That's just one Evernote hack, by the way. If you want to learn more Evernote hacks, my go-to place for that is always Brett Kelly's Evernote Essentials, which you can find at beyondthetodolist.com slash Evernote. Again, that's beyondthetodolist.com slash Evernote. It is basically the best Evernote resource that I know of. And Brett's a great guy and has been on the show twice before. Anyway, now it's time for you to do some deep listening to Cal Newport. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Cal Newport. Cal, welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So you've been on my list to have on the show for a long time and... I think this should be a treat whether or not people have read either of your two highly acclaimed in the online space books, uh, whether it's So Good They Can't Ignore You or Deep Work. But we're going to talk about both of those for a bit. And ultimately, let's set the stage here with some context. So what's your day job? And how did that lead you into writing both those books in the order that you did? My day job is I'm a computer science professor at Georgetown University. I guess the way to connect them is so good they can't ignore you, which was the first of those two books, which came out in 2012. I researched and wrote that book around the time I was entering the academic job market, around the time I was going to start interviewing for this job I now have. So I figured if there's any time in my life where really understanding careers and career satisfaction was going to be useful, 
it was going to be while I went through that job hunting process. Then I got a job as a professor, and the, the question comes up, how do I do well at this sort of demanding knowledge economy style job? And out of there came the genesis of the ideas that formed into deep work. So I, I think you can connect them pretty closely together. Yeah, yeah. So was it intentional that you took the title for so good you, they can't ignore you as like a spinoff of Steve Martin? Yeah, yeah. It's a direct... <laughs> uh, homage to Steve Martin's famous quote of my advice is be so good they can't ignore you. Yeah, which is a really cool way of approaching that whole career state of things, if you will. And you really lay out this kind of craftsman mindset versus versus a passion mindset. What's the big difference between those two? Because we keep hearing, you know, follow your passion. But you say that's actually the opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah, I mean, I went into that book just trying to answer a simple question. Uh, how do people end up loving what they do for a living? And I needed an answer to that question. So I wanted to go out there and write a book and figure out that answer. And you know, the very first thing you notice when you look into that question is that the most common answer is follow your passion. And the second thing you notice after you start researching for just like a day is, wait a second, that advice is not very good. This thing that we all hear, just follow your passion, be fine. It, it just, for most people, is not only going to not work but it's probably going to add more confusion, maybe even slow you down in your quest to build a, a career you love. And so I tried to invert things. If you really study what leads people to happiness and satisfaction in their career, it's not this passion mindset. We're always thinking, what is this job offering me? Is this the right job for me? Is this my true passion? Am I fully happy here? Would I be more happy doing something else? The type of mindset that really seems to work for people is the opposite, which is what I call a craftsman mindset. And that's where you start off by asking, what am I offering this job? How good am I? How valuable am I? How could I be more valuable to this job in the world? It's that latter mindset that more consistently leads people to actual passion. Yeah, it's almost a a honing of yourself regardless of situation and then the situations I, – I don't want to sound all frou-frou or whatever, but the, the situations then mold to you versus the other way around. I mean that's an interesting way of thinking about it that essentially uh, – the traits that make people love their work tend to be pretty general and don't have a lot to do with the specifics necessarily of exactly what you do for a job. And the way you get these traits in your career is you become really good. And that gives you the leverage or the bargaining power you need to actually get these type of things in your career. So yeah, it's not so much about what's the exact thing my job is and more about how valuable am I, how much leverage do I have in my work life. And almost a craftsman approaches things that – you know, whatever tasks are given to them, that they have this desire to master that task as much as possible, not just for like a work ethic in the present, but almost to take that skill forward and apply it and integrate it with other skills and experiences in the future. Yeah, this desire to, I want to be good at what I want, uh, I do, I want to build my skills, I want to produce things that are valuable, that desire of craft is exactly what seems to lead people to passion, much more so than this desire to find some mythical perfect match. So the other key piece here, though, in terms of being so good at something that they can't ignore you is this fact that's just continuing to grow that we live in more so now than ever and continually going to be more so in the future, a, a knowledge worker landscape. And so that's where deep work comes in, right? Uh, exactly right. I mean, deep work is a very particular activity where you're focusing intensely 
on a cognitively demanding task. And I'm convinced in the knowledge economy, it's one of the most valuable skills. Somebody out there is saying, well, I'm not a knowledge worker. Does deep work matter to me? And what's your answer to that? Well, it would depend, I guess, on what you do for a living. But what deep work does well, what it supports, why it's so valuable is really for two reasons. One, it helps you learn complicated things quickly. And two, if you're doing something cognitive, that is, you're producing something valuable with your mind, it helps you do that at an elite level. It helps you do it faster and helps you do it at a higher rate of quality. So if you're in a job in which learning things quickly and or producing things that are cognitively demanding at a high level are important, whether or not you call it knowledge work or not, and whether or not you're a computer programmer or a professional musician, which is also a job in which you have to learn things complicated and, and produce things based off of your brain, deep work is useful. So if those two things are going to add value to your job, deep work is the skill that the better you get at it, the better you'll be at those two things. So if that's what deep work is, we should probably clarify what shallow work is so we can kind of you know clear up the semantics here. Yeah, and the semantics are sort of the whole ballgame for understanding this perspective, which is once we have names for these different types of work, it really changes the way you think about evaluating your day, organizing your day, approaching your day. So deep work will define to be the, the effort in which you're very intensely concentrating without distraction for a long period of time. And then we'll just have shallow work be everything else. So we'll just make it the antonym of deep work. If, if it's not requiring unbroken, intense concentration, it's shallow work. If it does, it's deep work. And we really should start thinking about your work life in terms of those two different types of efforts. Those two definitions or what you put in those categories, I should say, are going to be different contextually for almost everybody as they approach this because we all have – even if we're all listening to this and thinking, yes, I am a knowledge worker, we have different tasks and different expectations and different positions. So my shallow work is my shallow work and my deep work is my deep work, but somebody else is completely going to categorize those differently, I think. Yeah, that's why it could be difficult to ascribe certain types of work into these categories and instead focus on the effort surrounding the work. So I, you're absolutely right about that. So that's why I stick with these general definitions. If it's requiring you to, to use skills you've learned and apply them at a high level with concentration, we count it as deep work. And you're, you're absolutely right. What falls into that bucket can actually be vastly different between different people. The other key piece here is in the book, you talk a lot about, though not advocating we all become Luddites, but you talk about the distractions and how those have continually grown over time as knowledge working has become more commonplace. And so this really is, this ability to do deep work is a skill and you keep driving that that point home. And I had to kind of put it in this paradigm that like ultimately what I think you're saying is, is that deep work is a skill, um, but distractions can be a habit. That's right. The things that are distracting us, you can have these habitual distractions that are impeding your ability to both improve the skill of deep work and apply it at a high level. And I think a, a useful analogy here might be something athletic. So if we think about deep work as being some sort of skilled athletic feat that you do, like running in a triathlon or something like this, then the distractions in this analogy would be unhealthy eating habits, unhealthy sleeping habits, the, maybe you're smoking, right? These sort of habitual things, the bad habits you have that put you in the bad shape. 
And so when it comes time to actually do the skilled, hard fitness requiring thing, you're going to have a harder time with it. That's the right analogy for deep work. The ability to concentrate intensely is something you have to hone and get better at and practice. And if in other parts of your life you, you have cognitive bad habits, you're devouring cognitive junk foods, you're smoking cognitive cigarettes, those bad habits are going to impede your ability to improve the skill and to then apply the skill at a high level. So then I hear people saying, but what if I work in an area where those bad habits are required for my day job? How do I do deep work then? In other words, if I work in social media or I check social media on a break, like isn't, is that a bad thing? How does that keep me from doing deep work? Right. Well, there's a couple different things you know, at play here. So we're talking about in the workday itself. There, there's things we can do to help to make a deep work a more accepted part of your workday and of your work culture. Then we have the things under your control, what you do during breaks, what you do at home, what you do during the evenings on the weekends to help keep your cognitive fitness strong. And it's useful to separate those two things. We really have two separate things. There's, there's strategies for both, but we should, we should keep them separate. There's what do you do within your workplace, within your work culture to make deep work priority, you know, prioritize. And then what do you do in your own personal life to keep the cognitive fitness in place that's going to support deep work? And, and both of those require non-trivial effort. I personally work in social media. And so I have a lot of shallow work that I need to personally do throughout my, my work day. But then also then doing social media in the evenings or the weekends or as frequently or as often as I personally do, it can feel like all I'm ever doing is shallow work. And I know there's a lot of other people out there who feel the same way. Yeah. Well, let's, if I can ask you, let's, let's turn sure. this into a bit of a, <laughs> an honor. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll get on the couch here. So yeah, get, let's get, let's get on the couch and let's talk about your childhood. No, but, <laughs> uh, so when you say, for example, you work in social media, what does that mean? So I have a lot of interacting with people, um, on social media channels that I do for my day job. I'm, I'm a community manager. And so a, a large chunk of my time is checking in and actually looking at social feeds and responding to people. Not only that, but then doing email and uh, even creating posts to push out there. And then of the various responsibilities you have in your job, what are the particular responsibilities that are skilled in the sense that the harder you concentrate on it, the more you produce and the better you get at it, the sort of more reward or promotion you'd have. Like what's the, what's the thing you do in there that's particularly rare and valuable and particularly needed of skill and concentration? I would say, yeah, I would say some of it is the writing. I say even, uh, even recording videos or doing live videos where I go live and then talk with people that way. That's, that's more of an, an energetic or energy giving activity when it comes to that. And it, it does require more focus or even yeah. outside of that, digging deeper on analytics and, and analyzing and, and then strategizing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So th this is like a, a very classic knowledge work situation where you have both deep and shallow work responsibilities. The shallow work responsibilities are, uh, keeping up with the communities that you manage, making sure that, that you're interacting with people, monitoring what they're doing, making sure the content is, is posted that needs to be coasted. And then you have the deep work aspects of your job, which is sort of mastering and utilizing the latest analytics, which is something that's complicated and continually shifting. And then also content production, you know, writing good scripts, writing good posts, producing the highest quality possible, you know, videos and articles. So it's a classic deep shallow work split. 
And so one of the core ideas for my book would be in this situation, you would sit down and try to answer this question. And either you would do this on your own or in conversation. If you, I, I don't know you're, if you're working under other people or not, or if this is an entrepreneurial effort, but one way or the other, get to an answer that everyone buys into for the question of what your deep to shallow work ratio should be in a given week. That is, what is optimal for your job in terms of the ratio of the hours you spend working each week deep to shallow? It's not obvious always to answer, but yeah. I would that's the question to start with. And then once you have that answer, then you work backwards and say, well, how do I make that? How do I make that happen? And let's just say hypothetically, uh, you end up with a 50-50 split seeming like the right answer. That if you're spending half your time really going intensely on analytics, really going intensely on your content to the point where it was, you know, fantastic, you know, fantastically produced, fantastically written, fantastically edited, um, and 50% really checking on the communities. Once you had that split decided, then you could start adjusting your approach to work to try to match it. And maybe maybe that would mean you, you end up being a monk mode morning type of person who, you know, starting at 11, you can reach me before then. It's always intense on the deep stuff. Maybe it makes your approach to the social media communities much more professionalized. You know, you, you, you just do it on your computer. You have a ritual and a habit. Okay. During this hour, I go through all these communities. I have a checklist that I talk to that I go into every community that I do a check everywhere, as opposed to it being more of a habitual type. Let me just check in a lot during the day. And so starting from a core answer to a question of, well, what is the deep to shallow work ratio that makes sense for me and my position? A lot of small scale changes to how you approach your day can actually unfold. Yeah, that's true. And even, uh, it starts to frame, the uh, time blocking a little differently as well, right? Yeah, because now you're trying to hit these targets. And I have a lot of reader case studies that are piling up of people who have done this ratio approach in their own work. And, and one of the surprises people had is, again and again, I hear, I thought the culture in my organization would never change. And that it is a culture that demands connectivity and accessibility. And then they have this conversation with their CEO, with their organizer, their supervisor. And Massive changes happen overnight. So one guy who wrote me after the book was in marketing for a tech startup, and he writes these white papers that are very detailed uh, for marketing purposes, and they're very hard to write. I mean, it's these technical white papers, and they had this Slack culture in his startup where if you didn't respond, you were considered that you were a slacker, right? <laughs> you better be <laughs> responding right away. It's a very ironic. So he read this. He read the ratio. He went and talked to his boss. He said as soon as he said it, it was clear in the conversation that it would it would have been nonsense or absurd for her response to be, no, no, I want you doing 100% of the shallow work. He made a lot of money, and most of it was for his ability to write these technical reports. So they agreed, actually, it should be about 50-50. The boss talked to his team, said there's going to be two hours every morning, two hours every afternoon. These are when they're going to be. This is when he's going to be doing deep work. He can't be bothered. He's not going to answer your slacks. He won't answer your email. It took him a week to adjust. And one week later, this guy who thought this culture would never change is spending 50% of his hours uh, in unbroken deep work. So it's surprising how much flexibility is possible once you get quantitative and once you get specific about what you're trying to do. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people 
people, or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity, from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and am intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com, to learn more. Yeah, and I think that's the thing to note there, especially uh, in the context of a company culture, which a lot of people are, and they're thinking, you know, there's no way I ever have time to do deep work. There's no way I will ever change culture. Actually, I have a personal story that fits with this perfectly in a, in a weird way. Long time ago, gosh, about a decade ago now, I was working in the adult admissions side of things at a university. I had a lot of shallow work, but looking back on it, there was deep work there, and I got so good at it that. I was able to do it so much faster because I just said, this is what I need to do. This is when I need to do it first thing. And then I also need to do it again in the afternoon after lunch. And aside from that, just be available. And so I was able to, by, by assessing things, by looking at things and saying, again, a lot of it was making phone calls and replying to emails and checking on uh, admissions material that, that had uh, sent in. Once I'd done that, I didn't need to ever do that again that day, certain things of that. So long story short, it, it was where I suddenly was able to re-evaluate and re-engineer day by day and week by week my schedule to where I was you know, outperforming other people. <laughs> like I enrolled yeah. way more people, way more students than others because I had said, well, this is the core stuff that has to be done. So let's sit and do that and not make calls and not be distracted and not be opening email when I'm looking at something else. And, and I think that's a lot of what we feel is like we've just got frenetic like activity all over the place. We never push one thing to completion. Yep. The perverse incentives of knowledge work versus other types of work and other periods of our economic history is that you can get negative pushback for being slow on shallow work, but there's very little positive, like in the moment, pushing to get you to do the deep work, which these are perverse incentives because 
The reality is, in most jobs, shallow work is what prevents you from getting fired. Deep work is what gets you promoted. Deep work is what moves the needle. And yet, in most jobs, you can get away with doing almost none of that, right? Because in the short term, people just see the freneticness, the busyness, you're answering their emails. But it's a dangerous place to be in. I mean, if you honestly reflect on your on your working life and say, I, I do almost no deep work, whether or not that's unavoidable or not, whether or not that's something you can change or not, it should be recognized that economically speaking, that is a dangerous position because shallow work by definition is easily replicatable. You're not applying hard-won skills at a high level. You're not improving skills that are hard to replicate. A lot of people can answer emails. A lot of people can put together PowerPoint slides. A lot of people can answer meetings. So you're in a tenuous position if all you do is shallow work. It is the deep work that actually has real value in the knowledge economy because that's where you build up skills that are hard to replicate it. And deep work is where you apply it at a high level, which you can't just hire a 21-year-old out of college to replace you to do that. So it's almost like this fight you have to be doing in, in our knowledge economy. This didn't exist in, say, the industrial era, right? I mean, if you were on an assembly line or something, if you weren't doing the thing that was valuable for the company, you know, that would be immediately noticeable because you're not actually at your position doing, you know, building your car door. You're, you're taking a smoking break, you know, okay, get out of here. But in knowledge work, it's all so hazy. So the fight of the knowledge economy is having the drive to fight for deep work to become a regular part of your schedule. That is what's going to move the needle on your career and you're probably right now going to have to be the person who drives it because organizations aren't behind it yet. Or workplace cultures aren't yet behind this as being the tier one skill. So it's up to the individuals to get behind this and saying, I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to have to apologize six times this week for being slow to respond to someone's email message. But I need this. I need this in my working life if I'm going to build a career that I, I really am proud of and that's a real source of value and satisfaction. Yeah. And there again, right there, it's that direct tie-in back to honing the deep work skill that makes you so good that they can't ignore you. You are the one who is has made themselves irreplaceable. Yeah. Craftsmanship is very valuable in the knowledge economy. If you can do something valuable at a high level, something that you can't – I mean, here's the test to do. How long would it take – me to train a bright 22-year-old right out of college to do what I'm doing right now? And if the answer is a couple days, then you should be worried about that activity. That means it doesn't have a lot of intrinsic value. You want to make sure you're spending a lot of time doing something where the answer to that question is three years or five years, right? I'm doing something at a high level that I trained hard to do and I'm doing it at an elite level. When we think about distraction in the knowledge economy, we, we speak too much in these abstract generalities, these sort of emotional generalities, like distraction is sort of vaguely bad and maybe I should be less distracted or focus is maybe vaguely good. I should be a little bit more focused and nothing ever comes out of these abstract generalities. So I'm trying to make it concrete to be able to concentrate intensely. is like being able to program a computer. It's a specific skill. It's hard. It's valuable. You do this, you become more valuable. You don't do this. You're vulnerable, right? So I'm trying to, I'm trying to get past the emotional generalities and make it concrete, right? It's like, if you don't know how to use a computer, you're going to be in trouble in the economy. It's like telling someone down in the 80s. I'm telling us that now in the 21st century. If you can't concentrate, you're going to have a hard time down the line in the knowledge economy. Well, and we all know that as the knowledge worker realm has grown, that the distractions have grown. We've got more of them. We've got an always on mentality. And we know they're bad. We know we shouldn't be multitasking. I mean, you even put it that multitasking is like the one thing that the more we do it, the more we practice it, the worse we get at it and not the other way around. 
Yeah, and you get permanent damage, or at least hard to reverse damage. If you spend a lot of time in this state of continuous partial attention, you become worse at focusing when it comes time to focus. I mean, you, it's, it's a skill you can develop and it's a skill you can lose. You have to think about it like fitness. If you're eating a ton of junk food and smoking, your mile time on the racetrack is going to get worse no matter how hard you try. These things are connected. You can't live a life where you're mainly subsuming cognitive junk food and then say, okay, now it's time to do the Olympic trials. I hope I'm going to be fast. Yeah. In, this, in the same way that you would feel physically drained all the time from eating those junk calories, it's the same thing with our mind. We're almost in a constant state of maxed out mental RAM. Yeah. I see it as a huge opportunity. And I, I want to try to emphasize you know, for your listeners that when, when I talk about deep work and people who have uh, embraced the deep life, where these are people that, that really get serious about their cognitive fitness, their ability to concentrate intensely. The benefits they experience are not minor. It's not about being slightly more productive or a little bit less distracted. It's about being an order of magnitude more productive. I, I mean, I really want to emphasize that the people who really train their ability to focus get these huge benefits. I mean, I'm talking about doubling their production of something valuable versus equally smart, hardworking people. I mean, it's these, it makes you, uh, you can become a superstar in your field on the basis of concentration. So I don't want to undersell it. I think it's too much undersold. It's not, I, I spend too much time on Facebook. I should do less. I'm talking about here's a superpower for the knowledge economy if you're willing to put in the effort to get it. And I think that's the thing is we all want it. We almost – if we don't fully understand what you're describing, we at least feel like it's at least partially attractive. Maybe we should go down that road and try it out. But the thing is is that somebody might set themselves up for failure by thinking they're going to suddenly break through and you know have the superpower instantaneously. Yeah, you have to think about it like a skill, not a habit. And and most people get that backwards. Uh, we're we're conditioned to think about concentration as a habit, like flossing our teeth. Something, of course, I know how to do it. I really should just make more time for it. But the reality is, it's a skill like playing the guitar. It's something that if you haven't been practicing and you just pick up a guitar, you're not going to be good at first. And having that that mindset proper is is really important because otherwise, you're exactly right. People are like, great, I've cleared the day, I've protected my time, I'm going to go think big, and it's incredibly uncomfortable, it's incredibly unproductive, and not much gets done, and they incorrectly conclude, maybe I'm just not a deep working type person. So it's, it's so important to realize that it's like a muscle or something you have, to, you have to build up. You will get better at it with practice. And I think that's the thing is we've, we've actually built up the, the habit of allowing distraction or going with distraction that we almost need to undo that at the same time as strengthening this deep work muscle. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's this notion of almost like breaking an addiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like I have to, and actually it does play a big role in it because a big, a big issue people have when they're new to deep work is that they have built up mainly in their personal life, but also at work, this connection in their mind between boredom and stimuli. Because of smartphones and web browsers, you can, you can get to a place where your mind has this Pavlovian connection that as soon as it feels the slightest bit bored, it can get an interesting stimuli. Look at an inbox, look at a tweet, look at an interesting website. If you have this connection ingrained in your brain, you struggle to do deep work because deep work by definition is boring. You're not going to have a lot of novel stimuli. You're focusing on one thing. And if your brain has been taught, you get stimuli when you're bored it won't tolerate deep work. So there's this foundational step people often have to take where they basically have to just white knuckle a bunch of boredom in their life solely so they can break this addiction. 
slowly so they can they can break the connection in their mind that boredom means stimuli. So it's it looks a little silly, but it's sort of the first step for a lot of people to embrace the deep life. Deep life is that they are sitting there bored in line at the bank and just saying, "I'm going to be bored." Yeah, it's almost like in a, in to go with the physical or the training uh, metaphor a, a little bit more. It's almost like standing in line at the bank and not pulling your phone out is like isometrics. Do you know what that is? Uh, Some sort of exercise? Yeah, like isometrics is basically – like push-ups is a a form of that where you're using the weight of what's around you or even crunches. Like you're not lifting weights themselves but you're using your own body weight or you're you're using what you have in the moment, which is nothing. And it's the opposite of the force against – uh, what you're trying to build. And so in other words, you standing there, I mean, it's probably, it, it, it's similar to you, you, almost looking at it as practicing a form of meditation as you're standing there in line as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think your fitness analogy is good too. It, the stand there board in line is, yeah, like you dropped down and gave yourself 25 pushups. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, it's not, it's not a waste. It's actually a very positive, specific training activity that you're doing. Yeah, it, it, and almost the opposite <laughs> it, to, to go with the physical realm there would be as if you were out of control and couldn't not have junk food. You standing in line there or at like, for example, the supermarket, it'd be you going crazy and ripping into all the candy bars that are sitting there and just chowing down. Yeah, exactly. Or you're an athlete and your coach sees you, you know, that afternoon at the park and you have the can of Pringles and the and the <laughs> Snickers. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, your your job is to be depends on you being really fit. Why are you eating this food? And But that's kind of the situation we're in because mm-hmm. what is a knowledge work job if not being a mental athlete? I mean, your brain is supposed to produce new value out of information by thinking hard about it. And so if it's getting this junk food all the time, it's like the professional baseball player who's, you know, drinking a lot of beer in the off season. It's common sense. That's probably not the right thing to do to set yourself up to succeed. So I know the shocker here for a lot of people out there for you is you're not on social media at all. Never have been. Yeah. And uh, does that make it easier for you? I think, I think you probably still have instances. It's easier for you than some other people I would assume to then enter into deep work. You've, you've, you have trained that muscle or your training of that muscle was easier because you didn't have that already. But at the same token, you do have email and you do have other things. So you, you do, do or did still have that urge that you had to fight to just check on something else. Yes, and both those things are true. And actually, the entire reason I don't use social media for the most part is because I want to keep my, my mental functioning as high as possible. I'm not dismissive of social media because I think I'm better than it. I'm, I'm scared of social media because you know i think i'd let my kids go hungry type thing i'm susceptible mm. i am susceptible to that type of thing so it's like someone who has an addictive personality says don't get cigarettes near me because i know it's going to take one <laughs> puff and i'm going to be doing two packs a day i mean i i'm a knowledge worker and i do really sort of high level knowledge work i'm a professor and a writer my mind is my meal ticket and so i don't want those things anywhere near me because i know they're engineered to be addictive and so that does help i also don't web surf I purposefully don't have a litany of websites to click through when I'm bored. So I don't know how to entertain myself when I have a web browser. That's purposefully because I worry about if I have it, I'm going to be, I'm going to go to it. It's going to be a crutch. And as you mentioned, I can't, I still have to have email in my life and that's something I have to fight against. And I I do a lot of efforts to fight against it. So uh, these things that I think most of us think about as being sort of harmless and ubiquitous and necessary 
I view with a lot of skepticism and worry. And I put a lot of care into my cognitive fitness and my cognitive environment because it makes a really big difference. I mean, I think it really makes a big difference. The, the better care you treat your brain, and I can tell you, and people debate it, but I'm sure I miss out on some things for not being on social media, but I'm sure I've made back in return 10 times the professional benefits by having a really good ability to focus. Well, for example, you've already written two plus or more books that other people have not written. They've thought, man, I should write a book about insert topic here and have never gotten around to it. Yeah, they, they say you can't you can't be an author without social media. You need these platforms or this or that. And it turns out you can. And actually it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't play as nearly as big of a role as people think that your author social media platform. Uh, so there's these things that we, we tell ourselves, but it doesn't matter. It's been fine. I still sell books as a as an academic. I still collaborate as a person. I have friends as a citizen. I know what's going on in the world. I mean, these things are really, really new. And, and we've written these storylines very quickly that they're somehow interwoven in the fabric of society. And you can't be a part of the world without them. I would just say be a little suspicious of, of those type of grandiose claims, because in the end, what you're going to be judged on is – what can you produce and what have you produced that's valuable? If these habits are like muscle memory, these distraction habits are like muscle memory where we do them automatically. We've got the, the cue and the triggers and the, the rewards and all that kind of stuff. And if deep work is like a skill that we need to hone like strength training, what kind of direction or what kind of starting point for someone who wants to start re-embracing boredom would you give them? I'll give you three quick training tips, <laughs> just to use that analogy. Great. Uh, the, the first is move from your phone and back onto the computer most things that are engineered to be distracting. So in particular, if you use social media, take the apps off the phone. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you to follow my lead and to quit these things. I get yelled at every time I say that. So you don't have to quit. <laughs> uh, and you can have all the access to all the very crucial things you get out of social media, but just access it through your web browser on your computer. That simple step makes a big difference because a lot of, if not most of the effort that these companies put into making their services addictive really goes into the apps. Right? That effort really goes into the phone app because their business model needs you looking at the phone a lot so they can sell more ads in these locations. So that goes a long way because it takes a, a source of shiny treats out of your pocket and makes it much easier to embrace boredom. So that's one thing I would suggest. Another thing I would suggest is once you've done that, to try to get to the point where you pre-schedule when you're going to use the internet to entertain yourself, just like you might have before said, I'm going to watch this show tonight for, that's on from 9 to 10. And wait until those periods to use the internet to entertain yourself. So if there's certain, you know, whatever, Reddit threads or, or Facebook comments, or there's certain people on Twitter you follow that are entertaining or, or interesting, or you you want to get sports news or sports rumors or whatever it is that you do this entertaining, just put the put time uh, aside for it. The point being is if you have scheduled time for it, that means all of the other times are times where you're going to feel the urge for distraction and you resist it. And again, you're getting those, you know, pushups in the aisle at the bank type training that all the other times like, I'm going to get this entertainment. I'm going to check in all these things today at six and it's four. And so I'm just going to have to be bored right now. And the third thing I would recommend is a, uh, tactic I call productive meditation, which is where you go for a long walk, you have a particular professional problem that you want to work on, and you try to work on it just in your head. And when you notice your attention wanders from the problem to something else, you just notice that and bring it back to the problem you're trying to work on. This is like 
pull-ups for your brain. You do this for three weeks, you'll be surprised at how much better you get at being able to concentrate. So those three tips, I think, gives a pretty good sort of crash course in cognitive fitness. Yeah, that last one actually almost works as kind of a, a life hack or some other better term, I guess, where you are actually doing something else. You're doing something physically by walking. Yeah. And so that kind of frees up your brain to, I don't know, it, it, it's the it's the one few times that multitasking is actually a real thing. Yep. <laughs> you're, you're walking and thinking at the same time and and just the the blood flowing actually does help, I, I have found, for my brain to be able to bring my attention back to the focused problem at hand. Yes, yeah, so I don't know why. It just it works, though. And I, I guess the fitness analogy is, you know, some people, if you're running, you listen to inspiring music, it helps you run better. Well, somehow walking is the inspiring music of deep thinking. It just makes it easier to get going. Mm-hmm. It's, something about it helps. And But that technique, productive meditation, I can't undersell it. I mean, that that is a good cognitive workout. The second tip you gave reminds me of the cheat day for Tim Ferriss's slow carb diet. If you're familiar with that at all, it's where basically throughout the week you eat, you know, you eat healthy. I won't go into the full diet, but you eat healthy all week except for one day a week where you say, that's the, that's my cheat day. I can eat anything I want that day. And then to be honest, that was the best, you know, most healthy I've ever been was when I was adhering to that mode of eating and I would have an urge for, you know, whatever, fill in blank here and I would write it down. And then by having written it down and saying there's a time and a place and a delayed gratification for that later, the urge went away or at least got better. And then later it was like, oh, I've got this list of stuff here. You know what? I don't really want all of this, but I will have some of it. Yep. You also you feel a little bit dumb in the moment if you're like, oh, I want to do this thing. I want to look at this website or something. But you're like, you know, I, I have time put aside for this and it starts in an hour. And you think, if I can't wait an hour, right, I'm really <laughs> going to be down on myself, right? It kind of focuses the issue. Or if instead you're just, I'm trying not to go online for dumb things anymore, just in general, mm-hmm. then it's a much different conversation. Like, well, I mean, I'm not going to always do that. And I should be able to treat myself occasionally. And, and just like with food. But there's another important point to that analogy, which is when it comes to dieting, people completely understand this idea that like you want to eat healthy for the most part and then maybe occasionally you know, you do the unhealthy thing. When it comes to digital addictions and distractions, people for some reason seem comfortable with reversing that. And they'll, they'll have this notion of like the, the, um, the digital detox or the digital Shabbat or the digital Sabbath where it's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take one day every week where, where I just step away from these things that are really addictive for me. And it just doesn't make sense. If you have something that's a negative behavior, you're like, I will occasionally take a break from it. I mean, imagine the diet. I guess it would be popular, but yeah. if the diet was like, you can eat junk food, but you know what, guys? On Saturday, you got to eat healthy. <laughs> On Saturday, you're, <laughs> nothing's going to happen, right? And yet somehow people think it's very profound to say, I'm, I'm, my brain is completely frazzled by digital distractions, but don't worry. On Saturday, I'm not going to use it. And so I think the fairest diet model is the right one here as well. You put aside occasional times to do the unhealthy behavior and healthiness is the default. If you flip that, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Well, speaking of like time and location and delayed gratification, is there a best kind of setup for where and when we should be doing deep work? In other words, 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not even saying let's go into the like, how do I find out what is the best time of day for me to do deep work? Although that's something, again, you've got to study yourself to know about. But even locations and distractions in terms of like atmospheres or coffee shops or libraries, and, and I know you do a lot of like helping people learn how to study that have like AD and HD type stuff. So how do we know with like time and location? Yeah, well, the general answer is all those type of things matter because deep work is hard and because it uses a lot of cognitive energy, your brain's going to put up a lot of resistance to it. So just recognizing as a first step that uh, I like to talk about it as being the scheduling systems and, and rituals and routines that surround the deep work. Mm. Those should all be fixed in place and thought through and thoughtful. Um, otherwise, you, you're really going to struggle. It's, a deep work is not something you can kind of do on a whim. Like, well, maybe I'm going to do some now. It's hard. And so the things to, that people who are successful at it seem to really care about is one is they, they tend to have a some sort of scheduling system that works well for them in their professional circumstance so that they're not just trying to schedule this stuff on the fly. You know, am I in the mood to do deep work? They have some sort of set in stone system. Some sort of depth ritual surrounding a deep work session also seems to help. Something that you do every time. And this can involve both the locations you go to as well as just things you do in your location surrounding the period right before you start deep work. That seems really common as well because it helps your brain shift into that mindset easier if you go through the ritual. So for some people, that's going to a set location. Uh, for some people like Charles Darwin, it's actually like a, a walking routine to walk this path a set number of times. And when I'm done, it's time to think deeply. So it could be a ritual you do where you end up back at your same office, or it could be going to your, you know, if you're so lucky cabin in the woods, <laughs> that's just for deep work. But having a big ritual is important. Having a system for how you schedule it is important. Uh, you have to treat the sessions with respect and recognize that they're a very difficult thing you're asking your mind to do. So you have to give it every chance to succeed. So in other words, we don't want to just have the expectation of suddenly, hey, I'm going to do some deep work right now and expect it to happen. Yeah. If you're just expecting that you'll, you'll be going through your day and say, I don't have much to do and I'm really in the mood to concentrate. If that's the core to your deep work plan, you're not going to get much done. I know you've got three different modes that you talk about that people can try as, a, as an initial approach that might work best for them. Would you mind explaining that a little bit? Yeah, I do talk about in the book different types of scheduling systems that people use or scheduling philosophies for how they integrate deep work into their schedule, just so you can see there's a variety of options. And so you have sort of on one extreme, the monastic philosophy of, of deep work scheduling. And this is where you essentially just do nothing but deep work. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I've just, I've cleared out of my life, basically everything that's not deep work. And I just prioritize deep thinking or recharging after deep thinking most people can't pull that off. There are people who can. They tend to be professional fiction writers and uh, some very famous thinkers, but that's one extreme. Then you have something like the bimodal philosophy, which is you're either in a mode that you're doing no deep work. You're accessible. You're communicating. You're just around. And then you shift at some points to long periods, usually multi-days long, where you're completely off the grid and are just doing deep work. So you have this clear separation in your life. Am I in a, a long, deep work session now, or am I in sort of shallow work, extravaganza? Moving down this line of severity, then you can get to the sort of rhythmic philosophy, which is same times on the same days, 
every week is when I do my deep work. I don't even want to think about it. Mm. And then at the end, at the other end, you have the sort of journalistic philosophy, which is I kind of have to take each week as it comes and see what I'm facing. But then I, I'll be pretty aggressive about going out there and protecting and identifying in advance for the next week or two. Okay, this is what I'm doing deep work. And so it could look different month to month, week to week. You're sort of finding the time when you can and then protecting it really savagely. So you have a large variety. It just depends on what makes the most sense for your particular circumstances. Yeah. And, and you dig uh, more deeply, no pun intended, in the book all about how to approach those and, and kind of try those out. You even mentioned earlier monk mode morning. How does that apply? Because I know some people might think, wait, what is that? Yeah, that's a it's an example of the, that rhythmic philosophy where you, you this is just the time when I work every week. I don't even think about it. And it's something I, I reported on recently because I, I encountered independently, but in a very short period of time, multiple CEOs of sort of like small size, small to medium size media type companies who did the same habit, which was they, they, they found the easiest way for them to integrate deep work was just to say, I do deep work till 12 and then I become accessible to my employees in the world after 12. And so just every morning they wake up, they work deeply on the things that move the needle for their company, and then they're on the phone, they're in email, they're slacking or whatever they do in the afternoon. And that consistency and clarity makes it work really well. It it turns out that people don't need you to be accessible all the time. What upsets people is if it's unpredictable whether or not they can reach you. And, And generally this tends to be the case in the workplace is that what people perceive to be a demand that they're always accessible instead is a demand that people don't want there to be uncertainty. Like I, I need you. I don't know if you're going to be around. I don't know when you'll next be around. But for these people doing the monk mode, it's so consistent that it's just very, very easy for their employees and clients to understand. It's like, oh, it's before 12. He's not available. Oh, it's after 12. I can probably get through to him. And it's very easy to adjust to. And they're getting massive amounts of deep work done. So I was impressed to hear about how far people had pushed that particular scheduling philosophy. Well, and my takeaway from that is that, again, it all comes back to scheduling that time, but more importantly, communicating that expectation you have with yourself as well with others in terms of company culture or if you're working from home uh, with the people that you live with, whether that's roommates or that's spouses or kids, that having that agreement or having the kind of barriers set up to say, this is what I do at this time. And having that set up, that, that may work for some people better than just, I don't know, I don't know when, or, or wait, I need to do deep work right now. Yeah, and then, and then you turn it back on the person trying to contact you defensively and are like, hey, man, you guys are always bothering me. Like, I'm, I just got to concentrate sometimes. It's somehow this defensive crouch. And, you know, the place where I actually first saw this bubbling up, this philosophy that it's expectations, not accessibility that matters, was actually in client-facing communication. And the first examples I found of this principle being true was companies that work uh, on contract for clients, right? They have clients, they do work for their clients. And you hear time and again of companies who very tentatively and with real concern change their communication policy with their clients. Usually the, the situation would be, okay, here's, we're going to have a set schedule for how we talk. We're going to talk once a week. We're going to have this call at a set time. We'll go over everything in the call. We'll send you a written transcript or it's we're going to move you into this client extranet where the information you need is there and you can check on the milestones and, and you don't have to you know have ad hoc back and forth messaging. And time and again, I'd hear this message where the companies would say we were terrified that the clients would say, I don't want to lose accessibility. I'm, I'm strictly losing value if you restrict 
how accessible you are to me. And time and again, the response came back was the clients were happier with it. They actually would rather have more clearly structured, more clear expectations on communication. If that means even that they have to lose some accessibility, they'd rather have the clarity. They'd mm -hmm. rather understand when they're going to talk to you, how to talk to you, than they would because people don't actually want to bother you all the time. It's just they need to know how am I going to get in touch with you when I need to get in touch with you? How am I going to schedule the work I need to get done? So this idea that expectation is more important than accessibility is one of these key insights that I think unlocks a lot more room for things like depth in your schedule. Yeah, I, I think we all have a preference for clarity over ambiguity when it comes to communication expectation. Yeah. I mean, I even changed at some point my email incoming as a writer where I, I just couldn't handle the incoming. I used to answer lots of questions and stuff. and I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I, I just changed it and said, OK, for this address, these are the type of things, you know, that you can send here. But I'm, I don't answer most of the messages. I just can't. I can only answer occasionally when it's like a good fit. And it turns out uh, it didn't upset people. People don't care. They actually like the clarity. Like, great, I'm not expecting an answer necessarily. I understand the rules of the game here. I'm going to send this in here. I might not get an answer. And it freed a massive burden for me and really had no negative consequences for the people trying to communicate with me because it was all about as long as the expectation was clear, people were fine with it. Yeah. Well, I know in kind of wrapping up here, I know that <laughs> it's not just enough to – eliminate the distractions and, and wean ourselves off our addictions, schedule a bunch of time for deep work and have, you know, our set place and our rituals to, to do that. We need to practice and hone that skill and not beat ourselves up when we first start doing this. But once we do that and we practice, then we enter into this other side of the line where we are good at deep work. We've fought the resistance off enough to actually sit in the seat and start doing the, the work. But that's also the other scary part <laughs> is then we, yep. we, then we have to produce something. You have to produce something. And it's not always obvious what you should be working on, which was really a surprise to me when I really got out there and talked to people about this book after the book came out is that for a lot of people in a lot of jobs, there's actually a lot of hard work required to identify this is the thing that will move the needle if I work on really hard. For some people in some jobs, it's 100% obvious. For other people in other jobs, it actually takes a bit of digging to figure out, okay, if I work on this skill or producing this thing better, that's what's going to move the needle in my career. The lesson being, in addition to honing the deep work capability, don't be worried if it's not obvious what you should be deep working on. No, do the work, do the legwork, have the conversations with the mentors, do the research, do the observation, put in the time to decode your job or your career like a professional to understand what is valuable. And don't be scared if that's not an obvious question to answer. It's something that often does require work, and that's okay. I, I definitely agree there. I, I really do think that this is probably one of the most important uh, episodes of this podcast in terms of people moving forward and really making meaningful change and, and completing meaningful work in their careers and in their lives. So, Cal, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks, Eric. I really enjoyed the conversation. So I'm really curious. I would love to find out from you what falls in shallow work versus deep work categories for you, as well as what style of scheduling deep focused work time in your schedule will work best for you 
I would love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to go over to beyondthetodolist.com slash 169 and leave a comment in the show notes for this episode. While you're there, you can hit share on your favorite social network to send this episode to someone who desperately needs to start down the path of honing the skill of deep work in their lives. We all know somebody who could use this episode to improve their quality and quantity of work. So go ahead, share it. Think of that person, click share, send it to them. Let them know that you got something out of this episode. And let me know that you got something out of this episode. Again, that's beyondthetodolist.com slash 169 for the show notes of this episode. And if you, like me, want to be organized and capture anywhere without being distracted all the time, try Evernote. It's simple, it's easy, and you can learn how to master it, again, from my friend Brett Kelly's awesome Evernote Essentials book. You can find that at beyondthetodolist.com slash Evernote. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Beyond the To-Do List is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx.